feel like, you know, there's this obsession in, in most, you know, cultures nowadays to achieve, which is great. Look, you know, if we mm -hmm. didn't have this notion of wanting to make the future better than the past, we wouldn't have Western medicine. We wouldn't have, you know, the, uh, the technology that allows you and I to communicate at the speed of light, you know, and be, uh, and, and be sharing this with literally, you know, thousands of people could watch us have this conversation, benefit from it, scale, and this power of, of kind of networks, which is another form of, of entropy, uh, which is good and has good things and bad things. But I think you're absolutely right. I think when you look for external validation, external satisfaction, you're not choosing yourself. Hello, everybody. You're listening to Chatting with Candice. I'm your host, Candice Horback. Before we jump into this week's episode, I want to do a couple of shout outs really quick. So I wanted to say thank you to Paul and thank you to Darren. Thank you so much for those cups of coffee. I really appreciate it. I want to thank all my Patreon members and my supporters on Locals. I couldn't do this podcast without you guys. So I really appreciate all that you're doing to keep it growing and going. So this week we have Brian Keating joining the podcast. Brian is an American physicist who is a distinguished professor of physics at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences in the Department of Physics at University of California, San Diego. He has written some best-selling books, Losing the Nobel Prize, and his more recent book, Into the Impossible, which I highly recommend. It's a very easy, quick read. We call it a self-help book, but it's just a lot of practical day-to-day -day advice through the lessons of nine Nobel Prize winners. So it's pretty cool. Please help me welcome Brian Keating. Well, awesome. I'm so glad we made this happen. Thank you for joining me, Brian. I'm glad to have you here. It's great to be here, Candace. I've followed you for a while and we have a lot of mutual friends in common and uh, it's great that we can make it happen. Yeah, I was. I always get a little bit trepidatious when I have someone like yourself on, um, but I found that the more of your content that I was consuming and as I was reading your book, it really put me at ease because you have this really great way, as you say, of making these geniuses normal people. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate that. So a lot of your content is for the regular person to consume because the topics are obviously fascinating to almost everybody. But I think a lot of people get intimidated when we start talking about the universe and string theory and black holes. And it's like, well, what is all of that? You know what I mean? If you don't go to school for it, um, a lot of people use the jargon and then it's easily to, uh, it's easy to get lost. Yeah. Um, I'm about halfway through your most recent book, which I think is amazing. Um, highly recommend it to everyone. It's Into the Impossible. And I know we have limited time. So, I mean, I want to get into like, God, consciousness, free will. Are there aliens? What's a black hole? And then here's your self-help book. So we're going to see how much of these we can tackle <laughs> in an hour. That sounds um, good. But uh, yeah, I could talk to you for probably days with someone like your mind. So yeah, I'm um, I'm really excited. That's great to talk to someone who's so enthusiastic. And yeah, I mean, all the things that you just mentioned, the intimidation, the kind of trepidation. I mean, that can it's not only felt by lay people, but it's also felt by scientists. You know, we always say, you know, Einstein is this paradigm. Literally, the day he was day after he died, there was a cover in Time magazine that said, you know, 
picture of the earth and it had a sign that said Einstein lived here. And, uh, you know, even scientists look up to him. I mean, most, most scientists have healthy egos, but, but even compared to Einstein, but I always point out, you know, Einstein wasn't always Einstein. Mm-hmm. And Einstein had those before whom he felt the imposter syndrome, which really plagues many of us. And sometimes you should have the imposter syndrome. Like sometimes you're just not that good. And you, but, <laughs> but it's knowing thyself as the Oracle of Delphi said, you know, that's the important thing. And, but, but also knowing that, you know, these are human beings and human beings have all too human, you know, flaws and peccadillos. And we have to recognize that if you worship somebody, uh, you know, for their intellectual achievements, you have to take them as a whole package. And not even Einstein was a flawless father, husband, et cetera, et cetera. So there are many ways you can meet or exceed what Einstein did. Uh, maybe not in theoretical, you know, astroparticle physics, but in other arenas for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a great part. So in the chapters, the way that you break it down, you have all these interviews with these Nobel Prize winners, and you see the common thread all throughout all of them and their achievements. And you you hear someone say that they have imposter syndrome when they're you know accepting the award, and they hope that they don't drop it, and like that's what's going on in their mind. And I was like, wow, it is it's the most humanizing um, ex- like experience, I guess, that you can relate to, right? And you just would accept expect that someone at, of that level is just maybe more ego or um, confident or things like that just don't really affect them. And then you're like, oh, well, we have this commonality. And if this person can do greatness, maybe there's potential for me to um, to add greatness to my life in some other some other realm. Yeah, for sure. If you look at, you know, these nine Nobel Prize winners in the recent book, um, two of them said they don't have the imposter syndrome. Uh, but what I found fascinating even those that don't have it, um, you know, there's there's few things in life where the opposite of an emotion or a sensation is the identifiable with the same, you know, phenomenon as, you know, something completely, as I say, opposite. So, for example, uh, we all know people that are insecure mm-hmm. and we all know people that are insecure and that leads to their arrogance because they're trying to like defend mm. off, you know, from attack from, from people. And so they put up this, you know, pit bull like exterior. And, you know, there's a lot of that you wouldn't believe it, but in science is extremely prone to type A personalities, you know, toxic mm-hmm. femininity, toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're very high achievers because I point out, you know, there's, there's three people at most who can win the Nobel Prize uh, each year. And, mm-hmm. you know, how many Fortune 500 companies are there? There's 500 of them. You know, there's many, many more opportunities in the business world. And yet there's just, uh, you know, there's just as much kind of tension to achieve this greatness uh, in the academic realm. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of people that, you know, they have issues with arrogance. Arrogance comes from insecurity. Mm-hmm. So too does the imposter syndrome, which is kind of like almost too much humility. And it's rare in my experience. Uh, you might may know differently, but but to find that the root cause of these two diametrically disparate effects are actually the same root cause which is insecurity. So I found that fascinating. Even mm-hmm. the guys who said, you know, and unfortunately it's, I, I asked women to come on. There are women Nobel laureates. There's only two that are alive right now. Both rejected me. And so I had a kind of flashback to in high school when you know, <laughs> I would ask out the brightest girls in the, in the, in the client, they would say, no, no, they just have a policy of not going on, on a podcast. Cause I guess their time is too short. Um, mm-hmm. so that's fine. Uh, but the nine men that I interviewed, they all had, you know, kind of a balance between humility, a little bit of, you know, of, of arrogance, swagger, I call it. And I think mm-hmm. to be great, you need to have both that in, in harmonious tension, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was listening to someone explain imposter syndrome in, in, in an interesting way, and they were saying it it shows up in a healthy amount 
when there's like a very introspective person. So someone that's constantly trying to grow or has that growth mindset and is just constantly competing with themselves. And I thought that that was really interesting because something for me, one of my Achilles heels is comparing, right? So Mm -hmm. I constantly try to check that when I notice it and then just be like, try to be better than yourself, you know, yesterday and 10 minutes ago. And that's really all you should or can do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've definitely felt imposter syndrome many times throughout my life. And I was like, well, that's, that's really interesting because I'm definitely someone that's constantly, you know, diving back in and saying like, what's going on in there? Um, So I do think it's healthy um, in small doses, right? Like you don't want to be self-deprecating, but yeah, but you need Mm -hmm. to have a little bit of, of confidence. And as Mm -hmm. I say, you know, kind of like swagger, Mm -hmm. you know, when you go into, uh, to give a speech or give a lecture or whatever, you know, we have the saying like every talk is a job talk, you know, even when you're giving the Nobel, (laughs) you know, probably like one of the winners of the Nobel prize who introduced me to the concept of the imposter syndrome within Nobel laureates, Barry Barish, who lives up in LA, not far from you probably, but he, um, he told me he never felt the imposter syndrome as strongly as when he won the Nobel prize. And, and he's just such a humble person. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, yeah, when you win it, you have to like, you know, prove, uh, have to sign this logbook that shows that you got it and you got your million dollar, you know, prize purse. If you win, you know, a share of it, some fraction of that. <clears throat> and, uh, and he looked at it and he said, well, I wonder who won this before me. And he looked over and he saw, you know, his former friend, Richard Feynman, who was at Caltech. He saw, Maria Curie, Marie Curie, whatever. And he saw Albert Einstein signature live, you know, right there. And he was just like, I'm not worthy. And I told him, uh-huh. I said, Barry, you know, I love you. He's kind of like the lovable uncle that we all wish that we could have. And, and I just said, you know, I have to tell you, Einstein felt incredible imposter syndrome. He said, really? And I said, yeah. He said, uh, he called Isaac Newton the greatest contributor, not only to, to physics, uh, Candace, but also to Western civilization. Mm. Which is incredible. You think like, ah, the laws of gravity, F equals MA, you know, body in motion tends to stay in motion. No, to Western civilization, not just physics. And I said, it goes even further than that because Newton, you know, the paradigm, this guy with this long, he felt tremendous imposter syndrome. And when asked who before whom he felt imposter before, he said, Jesus Christ. He said, Jesus Christ, you know, is impossible to live up to and I'm not worthy. In fact, he said his greatest, Isaac Newton's greatest accomplishment was not physics or the laws of optics or alchemy or religion. He said that he died a virgin because <laughs> that was the only way he could emulate Christ. And oh, so wow. I just feel like it's, and, and guess what? You know, Isaac Newton, Jesus Christ mm-hmm. probably had people, <laughs> Moses, he, you know, so it never ends. We never get into this promised land, no matter what it is, but that should be good news because that means that there's always somewhere else to go. You know, I heard, I don't know if you ever had Sam Harris on your show or you should, um, but you He's know, he great, said something yeah. once, you know, that I re- resonate with and to a certain extent. He said, you can never be happy. Like you can, you can only become happier, so to speak. Mm. You can only like proceed along a direction that makes you more and more uh, content and, and have equanimity, uh, but you can never like get there. And I translated that in my own nerdy way uh, to this concept of entropy, which you're probably familiar with, but in case anybody's not, entropy is kind of a measure of the disorder or the chaos in a system, like how much things are in motion or non-organized, disorganization. So a pack of cards stacked neatly in order and all the suits and all the order of the suits, that's highly organized. Mm-hmm. And then when you give it to your, your son or you know one of my kids, throw it up in the air, it's totally disorganized, right? Mm-hmm. So the latter is more entropic. It has higher entropy, more, more randomness, more disorder. And I kind of liken what Sam said uh, to kind of concept in physics of entropy in that when you're happy, let's say like right now, Candace, 
how many ways could I increase your happiness 10, 10x? Like if I want to just like make you, so I could make you a Bitcoin billionaire. I mean, more yeah, than you already are. An infinite amount of ways to, yeah, to level it up. Mm-hmm. Well, there's an infinite number of ways, but but like, how many yachts can you water ski behind? Like just, oh, one. okay, mm-hmm. you know, like even the richest kings and queens of yesteryear. I mean, we live better than them. So, they do you think only... that there's a cap? There's a cap on happiness. I, I would say that there's not a cap. You can always go up more. You bring more love into the world, more life mm-hmm. into the world. But um, but it's hard to like double it, triple it, like because it. again, if you have a billion dollars, another dollar more doesn't add, and a billion dollars even doesn't add any more happiness to you. However. If I said to, you know, I've had four billionaires on my show, including one who's lost two children and mm. any of us who are parents or just have loved ones that we treasure, we know there's infinite number of ways to make your life a hundred thousand billion times worse. Right. And so that's a statement of entropy. There's more, once you're as organized as possible and like your life is pretty good, you know, you can only go down, so to speak. I mean, you can go up, but it's mm-hmm. easier to go down. And that's a concept of entropy. And I think that, that you know, some of the concepts in the in the book relate to you know, like when you win this prize, you might not, you know, it might have been the thing as it was for me early on in life. I haven't won it, but I desperately wanted to win it as a, as a 20 something, 30 something. And I didn't win it. And that was kind of crushing. But even those that win it, like I just said, it's not, it's not like what you think. It's not the promised land. It's not Mm -hmm. what you expect it to be. Never Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's a difference between, and you describe this in your book, there's a difference between the people that just try to achieve greatness because they're curious and they're following something that um, that they're curious about or passionate about or they're trying to like solve this you know crazy riddle. And then there are people that are trying to check off all of these boxes in order to get the prize. Like the prize is the goal with the one example and the other one is just curiosity um, and seeing where that takes them. And I think when you're the person that's just trying to to get this, I don't know, like accreditation or the recognition or this, you know, um, esteem, whatever it mm-hmm. is, like you're, you're leaving your happiness external, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's all dependent on this external factor and that's not sustainable and that's super fragile too, because mm-hmm. then if you don't get that, then the one happens to your self-worth or your confidence, what happens to your research if you're not actually into that. And you, there's just so many ways that you kind of set yourself up for failure that way. Um, and I think we all do it. It's obviously not a Nobel Prize for most people, <laughs> but it is something. It's that bonus. It's a different award. It's getting that girl. It's getting that house. And it's just realizing like none of that is going to change your inner state. It might for a moment. And then all of a sudden you're still left with who you are and who you, you surround yourself with. So it's like checking those things. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I feel like, you know, there's this obsession and and most you know cultures nowadays to achieve which is great look you know if we mm-hmm. didn't have this notion of wanting to make the future better than the past we wouldn't have western medicine we wouldn't have you know the uh, the technology that allows you and i to communicate at the speed of light you know and be uh, and, and be sharing this with literally you know thousands of people could watch us have this conversation benefit from it scale and this power of, of kind of networks, which is another form of, of entropy, uh, which is good and has good things and bad things. But I think you're absolutely right. I think when you look for external validation, external satisfaction, you're not choosing yourself as my friend and co-author of the foreword to the book, James Altucher says, um, you know, you're leaving it to these 
gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know much about your academic history, but you like, I'm sure you remember in high school, like people want to get into the best college. You got to get good grades. You used to have to take the SATs. You don't have to anymore. Um, uh, but then in, in high school for someone like me, so I'm a, I'm a professor at a top research university in the world. I have an endowed, you know, position. I'm very blessed to be here. I love what I do every day. I do it for free. Don't tell Gavin Newsom if you see him, <laughs> uh, because, you know, he might, he might take me up on that. But um, to, to get here, it's it's like it's worse than, you know, almost anything besides professional sports, because I had to beat out the most brilliant people to get into a good college. I went to Case Western in Ohio. I had to go to I went to an Ivy League uh, graduate school at Brown University. I went to Stanford and Caltech. And then I got an assistant professorship. Then I got tenure. Then I got a full professor. Then, you know, and it just never ends. Mm-hmm. And all those routes, you're not in control of your destiny. In fact, you're competing against those that might be superior to you. Mm. And, and we kind of lure people in, um, you know, because we make it a little bit easier at, um, you know, at all these steps until the last one, like the last one to become a professor and then certainly become a Nobel prize winner. I mean, I chose the winners or I was invited to choose the winners in 2015, uh, of the 2016 Nobel prize. And the only rule they had was that <laughs> you can't choose yourself. You, you're not allowed to select your own name as the Nobel prize winning deserved Nobel prize winner. So I felt this is, this is, uh, you know, uh, kind of crazy, but you really can't. And, and then so you ask, well, how do I become kind of, uh, satisfied with what I have? You know, mm-hmm. for me, it's, it's a lot of, you know, my religion is Judaism and, and we're very much focused on this very powerful lesson. As I keep saying, the promised land that relates to Moses, you know, the, the, the founder, you know, the founding prophet and priest of Judaism. And he literally, you know, was the last person, according to our tradition, to ever see God and talk to God face to face and and so forth. And yet, for all he did, he never got to get into the land of Israel, which is the dream of, you know, Jews for thousands of years. And so I think that's a powerful metaphor. Like, how many, you know, and also the rest of the Bible, you know, which Jews read every year, you know, one fifty second of it every day, every week, you know, none of the patriarchs or the matriarchs from Abraham you know, Sarah, Rachel, Leah, Jacob, I, they, none of them had an easy time conceiving like children. Mm. I find it very interesting because many of my friends, you know, they just can't have kids or maybe don't want to have kids. And, and I find it very interesting because on the same time, you know, you talk about aliens at, at the opening uh, and I want to get in into that cause that's really fun. But, um, but another thing that physicists are really, you know, kind of concerned with is like, um, can we teleport? You know, can mm-hmm. we time travel? Can mm-hmm. we go through a wormhole or a black hole or some other kind of hole? I don't know. And, and get to another region of space time. And if so, like, what would you do? And blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, guys, we already have a method to teleport and time travel. And they're like, what, what do you mean? What are you talking about? I'm like, they're called kids. Mm-hmm. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, you can't teleport your physical corporeal body Candace, you can't move that and do that macro. We can I teleport photons and you know electrons and properties of those things, but not the physical things that nothing faster than the speed of light can travel. However, you can transport your values to your children. And it doesn't even have to be your children. Mm-hmm. You know, I read today like, you know, oh, Thanksgiving is going to be great, you know, really hard, especially if you have kids. And like, so you shouldn't have kids. And I had another physicist, I won't give mm-hmm. his name. He's a famous guy on Twitter. And he was like, one of the best ways to, to reduce climate change, global warming, is not have kids. I think that is the most arrogant and entitled Evil. opinion to give to people. I get I get incensed 
when I see that. And it's Me like, too. how dare you? Exactly. How do I, you'll probably know this. Um, I can't think of the name of the study, but there's this theory when it comes to um, like, what do you call it? Um, exponential technology mm-hmm. and climate change. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, it's this very steep peak and then it drops. So when you listen to some people when they talk about climate change and existential threat, blah, 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 they kind of say that, theoretically what you want to do is actually rev up to get past that peak and then once you get down you actually the technology that you have to counter climate change um is so it makes such a dent that what you did before won't matter yeah, right well, so it's like just keep on going you don't want to go backwards and just shut everything down that doesn't make sense right it's very arrogant to presume that there'll be no improvement in fact it's anti-scientific right i find it um incredibly uh depressing and and but it doesn't surprise me i mean look what we're telling our kids nowadays we're telling them doesn't matter you know what you are who you are you have certain unearned advantages, which of course is true. Uh, and yet you're wholly beholden to the boomer generation that caused the end, ending of life as we know it, which is just preposterous. Life's going to go on. Earth is going to go on mm-hmm. just fine. As you're saying, there is a peak because there's not an infinite amount of carbon. I mean, think mm-hmm. about it. There's nothing infinite in the universe, as Albert Einstein said, except uh, the amount of human stupidity. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, but the thing, you know, there's not just, there's just physically not an infinite amount of carbon. You can't make an infinite amount of carbon uh, dioxide oxide, et cetera, et cetera. But even leaving that aside, if I told my kid and I said, there's no hope, like imagine, you know what the, was the greatest, uh, most pernicious problem afflicting uh, the climate, the environment on Wall Street in the early, uh, in the late 1890s it, and, and London as well, all these big cities, their number one problem was the amount of, of horse poop. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll just keep it clean. So horse poop was just like manure was just, and people were getting sick and diseases and dysentery and this thing and that. And plus it was just like disgusting. Yeah. So the stock markets would routinely shut down for weeks at a time. And it was just like, the economy is going to crash. And of course, what got what solved that problem? Like, do we just like have horses wearing diapers? Do we just like extrapolate the currents? And no, we had a radically new type of technology and to not tell a child, you know, to tell a, my daughter, no, don't think about it. It's not worth it. You're doomed. It's mm-hmm. anti-scientific because the, me- the the notion of science, by the way, the word science in Latin means knowledge. It doesn't mean wisdom. So if you take away one thing, you know, from this conversation is never look to a scientist for wisdom. Some have wisdom. Just like some, you know, people that are, you know, uh, that aren't very wise will know certain things, uh, mm-hmm. but but there's no absolutely no correlation. In fact, one of the, you know, Nobel Prize winners, like if you think that Nobel Prize winners are smarter than the average person, you should really see them the day that they uh, meet to have breakfast and they don't know where to find the eggs and the and the silver. You know, it's just like that <laughs> stereotype is is uh, unfortunately holds true. So, no, I think it's uh, I think it's absolutely deplorable to say that there is no solution and don't even bother trying. Um, mm-hmm. That's fatalism at its worst. And it's anti-scientific. Science is the, is the belief in the, in the ignorance of prior generations. As I said, you know, Einstein knew more physics than Isaac Newton. There's just no way around it. I know more physics than Einstein, you know, theoretically, just because I came in much longer ago, uh, later than him. And because of that, the inexorable progress of society. But without that, Without me saying, well, maybe he's wrong. And without him saying, maybe Isaac Newton is wrong. The world mm-hmm. would not make any progress. So mm-hmm. I think that's a very important philosophical point to the layperson to understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, 
That's a really cool way to look at transportation is by having children. And then it makes me think of, and I don't know if which camp you're in with this, because I know it's still one of those more nuanced things, though, is is epigenetics, right? And the thought that um, we are passing down our ancestral life experience, you know, through the lineage of having children and them having children. Um, and to me, it makes it makes a lot of sense, especially when you talk about the women, because I think with women, what some people suggest is that it goes back like three different generations because of um, like by week 20 in utero, the female will already have all of the eggs that she has when okay. she's a full grown adult. So the idea that your state, just like your um, whether you're filled with anxiety or whether you're filled with love and whatever traumas you do or do not go through are going to obviously be passed <laughs> on into yeah. into the womb, right? And I don't so know I if you ever cool. noticed this. It, it bodes better for you than for me. But uh, I've noticed that most uh, kids are closer to their maternal grandmother than their paternal grandmother. Um, and I think that's partially related to what you just said, because at one point, the egg that became you uh, was inside your grandmother on your maternal side because it was in your mother when you were born, right? So, mm-hmm. and when she was born, um, mm-hmm. she had the egg that would become you. So, I think, yeah, this is pretty far off topic. Although I do study, you know, the birth of the universe, so you know, we could pivot uh, and not not seem too forced in doing so. No, um, yeah, that's actually on my list too. <laughs> is because I well, I love that. Um, like you're a man of faith, like I'm a pretty spiritual person. Mm -hmm. And I find that a lot of times when you get these very heady people or these very um, like science forward people that they tend to write off anything esoteric or mystical or spiritual. Um, And I was listening to this guy. It was kind of like a debate between a physicist and like a preacher. And he was saying that basically the reason that he can't wrap his head around his God was because they, he was assuming that his hit that God had to exist within time, space, and matter, and that the God that he was talking about exists beyond that. And then they were like, "Well, you know, ten years ago, you could never suggest that there was a pre-Bing universe, but now it's something that cosmologists are constantly talking about." So, um, do you believe in a beginning, or do you believe in? I guess, what would your take on a pre-Bing universe be if there was one? Well, I actually think that's the most interesting question in all of science because it's the one that intersects with all other sciences. You can't have human life uh, without, you know, prebiotic, uh, you know, uh, chemicals. You can't have those chemicals without a planetary system. You can't have the planetary system without a, a stellar life cycle. And you can't have the stellar life cycle without the origin of the elements themselves. Now, the question of the origin of the elements is that's usually uh, construed to be the what we call the Big Bang. And mm-hmm. in in reality, the Big Bang is not necessarily time equals zero. So short answer to your question is we don't know. Um, but I do think it's the most interesting question in all of science because from any system that you ever look at, you can normally kind of feel like there's some direction that time is proceeding. In other words, um, if you look at, a, um, if you look at, you know, you're driving down the road, your car, you know, is speeding up, it gets a little warmer inside, the brakes start to heat, you know, there's physical changes associated with your physical direction through space. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet the laws of physics have no direction of time built into them. In other words, if I take you out far into the universe and I just show you this pendulum clock, grandfather clock swinging back and forth, you can't tell where did the pendulum start going? You can't tell the absolute time. You can only tell relative time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it's very interesting to think philosophically, if time did begin, um, how does time proceed? 
when there is no time. In other words, when there's no, no way to move in a direction, that direction does not exist. How do you start going off in that direction? Um, so that's very mysterious. And that has led people um, along with this concomitant realization that the universe seems to embody a directionality um, and an asymmetry in the forward versus the reverse direction of time in certain processes. It's led people to think, well, maybe the universe had a pre-existing state. Mm -hmm. And those models are actually much older than the Big Bang. For example, Einstein didn't believe in the Big Bang, even though it was a direct consequence of his laws of relativity. He called that atrocious for many years until Edwin Hubble of the Hubble Space Telescope fame showed him up there in, in uh, Pasadena and Mount Wilson. He showed him the expanding universe uh, was an inescapable conclusion of the observation of galaxies and distant uh, quadrants of the, of the universe. So Einstein overthrew his preconceived notion, which was held by everybody for 2000 years, 3000 years, even going back to the ancient Egyptians. Um, uh, and just after the ancient Egyptians, rather the Greeks felt this. Um, but it turns out even older than that are sort of like these cyclic models where the universe kind of, you know, goes through oscillations for mm -hmm. all eternity. Now, what does that mean? Um, and, and so where we see these things in our equations, which lead to what are called infinities or singularities, um, the proper way to think about those is like that marks a enormous question mark, a facet and a feature of our ignorance of this particular physical law. And what's great about human beings is we're never satisfied. We want to keep learning about these and understand from where did the universe emerge? Because it's not exactly that much more satisfying if I tell you, I, I put out videos um, once a week or so, just like solo videos explainer on my YouTube channel, you know, for the layperson, but cutting edge scientific things. Today's video is that we're talking on a Friday um, in, in mid-November. And, and it was about like, how do we know about this process that is purported to let the universe arise from nothing? In fact, there's a book on that very subject by Lawrence Krauss called The Universe from Nothing, in which, Candace, he presupposes the existence of the laws of physics and the existence of what are called quantum fields. Mm. And so is that nothing? Is that something? Is everything? Um, so these are the most fascinating questions. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's, it's actually a very hotly debated field and it happens to do with the type of cosmology that I do, which is studying the heat left over from the formation of the elements. It's the oldest light in the universe and it's called the cosmic microwave background radiation. And there's a beach ball behind me that kind of has like a planetarium for that. It shows like all these little freckles and spots on it. And uh, that is the oldest fossil relic that humans or any other species could ever detect in the form of light, but not in other forms. So we're always continuously looking to improve our vision back to the earliest moments that we could possibly peer into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, it's, I don't know how, cause it's all, again, all above my head as a regular person, but I know one of the examples that you were talking about, um, it was one of the Nobel prize winners and he, they had won a, because they were measuring ripples that were like two point something billion years from ago that are mm -hmm. just now being measured. And I'm yeah. like, how is that possible? Like, <laughs> how does something travel that like that number doesn't even compute to me? Um, <laughs> and it's just so fascinating. <laughs> You're like, how do you even begin to say is something coming from nothing is not is something coming from something? And then what is that something? Um, so, yeah. yeah, 
No, these yeah. are, believe me, you know, Einstein, another, you know, to make this more of an Einstein love fest uh, would be impossible. But, you know, Einstein said, don't tell me about your problems with physics. Like I have my own, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and they were grappling with with the same kinds of concepts and just different garbs. So that's one funny thing is just to watch, as Mark Twain said, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And we're having the same kinds of debates that Hubble and Einstein and others had literally 100 years ago and that, you know, Newton and Galileo had hundreds of years before that. Mm-hmm. So um, to answer your question, you know, specifically, we observe things in the universe that are delayed. They're not happening instantaneously. In fact, even if I was like looking at you through a high powered telescope and you had the pleasure of looking at me and that would be so much fun for you, uh, <laughs> looking at me through a high powered telescope, right? You wouldn't see me instantaneously because you're up in L.A., right? Uh, North Carolina. Are you in North Carolina? I thought you were in LA. I'm oh, sorry. Um, so, uh, so even better. So North Carolina is about 3000 miles away. Mm-hmm. And so light travels the fastest speed of any known phenomenon, uh, except it's not infinite. So it's, it doesn't occur to us instantaneously. When you look up at the moon tonight, you'll be able to see the moon. It's about half illuminated. And that will be about 1.5 seconds for that light to ha- travel to your eyes on earth. If you look mm-hmm. at the sun, by the way, I'm an astronomer. I'm not telling people to look at the sun through a telescope <laughs> or even a, but if you see the sun could disappear right now, we wouldn't know about it for eight minutes. Wow. The universe is even bigger. Our solar system is a couple of light hours across. Um, in other words, traveling at the speed of light to get beyond the orbit of Pluto, to get past where the farthest known object is, is over a, an hour traveling at the speed of light. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just not even scratching the surface, uh, you know, to call that the tip of the iceberg is an insult to icebergs because the nearest star system is four light years away and our galaxy is a hundred thousand light years away. The farthest reaches of our galaxy, the next nearest big galaxy is about 2 million light years away. So the light that I see, and I actually looked at it through a telescope last night, I was looking at light. Candace, that emerged from that galaxy when there were like hominids walking around in Northern Africa. So so that galaxy might not even exist and we won't know about it for two and a half million years. And you keep going out in the universe and where these black holes were that resulted in the 2017 Nobel Prize to my friend Barry Barish, who wrote the foreword to this book and Ray Weiss and Kip Thorne was to observe the inspiraling of two other incredibly abstruse phenomena called black holes and they collided together and anything that has matter and mass uh, traveling at high speeds in this case traveling near the speed of light and each one of these two black holes weighs as much as 30 of our suns colliding together in a massive explosion that took the physical proportions of every location in space and moved them a little bit closer and a little bit farther apart so in other words you could measure that by how much you would change your weight. So when mm-hmm. this black hole, this was located 1.2 billion light years away from the Earth in some galaxy. We don't know exactly which galaxy. We just know that it happened in a given direction on the sky. Those waves of gravity came through the Earth and caused this detector system in, in, in Washington State and Louisiana. It caused them to resonate and vibrate. And the distortions that they measured were equivalent to changing their weight by like a factor of a billionth of a billionth of a gram or something like that. It's incredibly minute amount. Mm. And yet they could detect it because they have ultra sensitive technology. Um, but so these phenomena that we see, we never see these things directly as they are, right? I mean, even like, even if we were in person, you you don't see me three-dimensionally. You just see your eyes are two-dimensional 
objects. The retinas in your eyes are just like the screen of your TV, right? Your monitor. They're two-dimensional. They have length and width only. They don't have uh, depth. And so looking at something, our eyes are just coupled to this magnificent computer called our brain, and that synthesizes a stereo kind of image. Mm -hmm. Um, We can do the same thing with technology. And the whole point of science in what I do is to augment the senses that we have, light detection, basically sound detection, sense vibration detection. We don't do much with taste in, in my field, but, but um, you know, colors and the spectrum, et cetera, et cetera. And those are all enhancements of physical senses to measure what we can't measure using the, the physical body that we have. So we use indirect tools to measure them and we've gotten exquisitely good. But the fun thing about science is that usually when you unlock one mystery, two more kind of open up. In this case, we don't know much about the properties, the physical composition of these black holes, what their properties will be like, what where they were exactly, and, and even fundamental properties of how gravity relates to the other forces of nature uh, called quantum mechanics and um, and electricity and magnetism. So these are really important things. And it's just such a fun thing to be able to contemplate. Imagine getting paid, you know, I mean, I don't get paid. Yeah, I have a couple of advertisers, but I don't get paid to like Mm -hmm. chat on my podcast really, right? Um, But imagine you got paid to like think about all these questions. That's why I say I would do it for free, but don't tell Gavin. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's all fascinating when you hear all of these theories and it's, I find it so perplexing that you could talk about a black hole with some people theorizing that within each one is another galaxy with another black hole. And then this just goes on and on and on like a fractal. And we can measure, you know, waves of gravity from billions of years ago, but we write off God as an impossibility or we write off aliens as an impossibility. And I'm like, well, if you look at stuff that we is pretty much concrete like we know black holes exist we know that you know there's this giant fiery ball that keeps (laughs) us warm like there's room for possibility for all of these things um so i feel like yeah you should have some skepticism but like leave some room for some magic and some belief because there's a lot of crazy stuff that we've discovered and are discovering yeah i think that scientists look at you know religion god what have you uh, with skepticism, you know, and maybe maybe it's not altogether unearned or or what have you. Um, but uh, but on the same token, you know, I feel like it's it's kind of a lifeless and and maybe devoid of of meaning if you just think about the material, if you just think about um, the physical. And my, part of my mission as a believing, practicing Jew and as a cosmologist is to not prove God's existence. So you didn't ask me that, and I'm glad that you didn't, because it's much more scientific to say, like, well, what can you do? What is your, you know, kind of role? And in my role, I feel, is to is to give people permission to consider um, the, the possibility that God might, ex- right. might exist. So you can't prove that he doesn't exist. Even the most vehement, avowed atheist, Richard Dawkins, I've had Michael Shermer on my show. You know, these are the foremost skeptics and, and uh, you know, opponents of even things like intelligent design. And then I'll have on people that are proponents of intelligent design, Christians. Uh, I'm not a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can debate these things. And I think as long as the debate is done with love, like if I'm trying to change your mind, oh, Candace, you're you're so <laughs> stupid. You believe in God. You need this fairy and the godmother. You know, fairy. I think it's, I don't talk to people like that. Even people like Lawrence Krauss, who I've had on, you know, he, a lot of it is superficial. And, and this is a surprising thing. 
in Judaism, you're familiar with the bar mitzvah or the bat mm-hmm. mitzvah. These mm-hmm. happen age 12 for girls and 13 for boys because b- girls are more mature than boys. So they get to their maturity a year before boys do, which, you know, having boys and girls, I can agree that that is correct. Uh, but when you look at um, uh, when most Jewish men and a lot of these scientists that are atheists, Stephen Jay Gould, Carl Sagan, Lawrence Krauss, um, they're Jewish men, boys, you know, once they were boys. And what happened? Well, they learned about Judaism in this case, and, and it goes for like Dawkins probably as a Christian or whatever. And they stopped learning when they got their, you know, bar mitzvah and they completed it. And then it's like, done with this. Like now I've graduated. I don't need to go to temple anymore. And I find it fascinating because none of them to a man would ever say, oh yeah, if a 13 year old told me that my theory that a universe came from nothing is totally bogus, I'd say, oh sure, you know. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, why do you listen to the to a 13 year old, i.e. you? And that was the last time you knew anything about Judaism, if that's your religion at, at birth. And now you just wrote it off, you know, Steven Pinker is another. So they tend to have very juvenile um, conceptions of God. And I say to them, I don't believe in that version of the God you don't believe in either. Because, mm-hmm. you know, like when uh, the Soviets sent the first astronaut, Yuri Gagarin, to space in 1961, he the first thing he said when he landed back on Earth, like a good Soviet, uh, you know, comrade, uh, cosmonaut, he said, oh, I went up there. I didn't see a, an, a man in a, in a white beard, <laughs> meaning like he didn't see God. And like, that's the most idiotic, anti-scientific, <laughs> propagandist thing to say. Like, I don't believe that there's a guy in heaven on a space, you know, pony you know, or space chair, you know, floating around there either. So good. We agree on that. It's much better as a scientist. The most important thing scientists should say is with humility. I don't know. And mm-hmm. that's a very good, uh, good thing to encourage your kids. And by the way, I'd be remiss if I don't say like, you should get your kid a telescope. Like you can get telescopes. Everybody, everyone tells Mm -hmm. me I should start like my own telescope company, but no matter where you are. So I'm in Southern California. You could be anywhere. You can see the exact same craters on the moon. Uh, You can see the exact same moons of Jupiter. So Kenneth, you can see other moons of other planets. You can see the rings of Saturn. You can see that galaxy I talked about, 2,500,000 light years away from us. And, And it'll just be like, again, it's like time time teleportation and it may do for a you know young person in your life and maybe this comes out before the holidays it's like the best gift you can possibly and i can send you some links and you know if you want to put in the show yeah that would be super yeah Yeah, i was actually looking looking at one for my husband too oh okay awesome that'd be great yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll send you some put in the link. Yeah, I need to get, uh, you know, I need to, to start, you know, some some uh, totally corrupt telescope manufacturing company so I can get. <laughs> but I, I build other types of telescopes. So, um, but but really, that can spark a type of wonder, and it doesn't have to. Like, it doesn't mean your son has to become an astronomer. Um, mm-hmm. But it's 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 unbelievably powerful. And the, the analogy I give is like, you might have heard of like the Higgs boson or some huge particle accelerator smashing atoms together, nuclear reactor. Like, I hope you don't have one of those. Like if you do, the <laughs> FBI will probably come visiting soon. But you could have the exact same experience physically, emotionally, spiritually. You could have that same feeling that Isaac Newton had, that Galileo had, that Einstein had, looking at the same objects mm-hmm. through a tiny telescope. It costs $50. And I think that's just amazing because you can't do it in any other, like you can't like look at an X, X-ray crystallography picture of a DNA molecule. Oh, there's a double heat. Like, I hope you don't have that in your basement. You know, your kids will be in great danger. <laughs> so, but you can do it with a telescope. So uh-huh. that's my pitch 
for for big astronomy, go out and get a telescope for for Christmas. Get a telescope. Yeah, I think that's so interesting that that um, Russian astronaut was just like, yeah, there's I don't see God up here because when you hear some of the U.S. Um, astronauts, they kind of have a, a different experience, right? Like yeah. they have a very spiritual experience. Yeah, Buzz Aldrin did uh, Holy Communion on the surface of the moon. Yeah, so it, it, that's just I find that interesting the cultural difference there. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I mean, there it was kind of mandated. Marx said, you know, religion is the opiate of the people and it was mm. a Marxist country for, for a long time. But um, but I think if you deny that there's a grander meaning behind what we do as scientists, you're just not doing it right. You know, like, you know, find mm-hmm. another job, bro. Like, if you think of it, just like I feel the reason I started my YouTube channel is to give, you know, free content to the taxpaying public that pays my salary. Mm-hmm. You know, any every scientist has, has benefited from from uh, taxpayer, you know, uh, generosity. Mm-hmm. And so, for me to take that, and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm I'm very specialized, Candace. I'm doing. You, you can't understand. Like, it's one thing if you say it, and I know what you mean, but I feel like I should have to, as a moral imperative, I should have to translate what I do to you. I mean, you paid, maybe you paid a dollar. I don't care. <laughs> I have a moral responsibility to, to give you some return on that investment. So that's what my YouTube channel is all about. Mm-hmm. And I wish that other scientists would do it, but Candace, they don't. And part of the reason is I think like part of the reason they don't even think about spirituality. Why? Because it's hard. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I forgot. You knew quantum electrodynamics, you know, at age three, you know, when mm-hmm. you were born. No, no, no. I had to work. Oh, you had to work at that. Oh, that's interesting. So mm-hmm. you work on things that you find valuable and worthy of your of your attention, don't you? Mm-hmm. And to a person, it's very hard to find some, some do it. And some, you know, most do not. And, and that goes for, you know, contemplating the big picture. I don't care. I mean, my religion forbids me from proselytizing. Like, I, I am not allowed to say, you know, we'd really, you know, really like you to be on our team, you know, Candace, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's not so bad for women. You know, you don't have to get any minor surgeries on any part of your <laughs> body. It's, it's pretty easy. No, I'm not allowed to do that. Because, mm-hmm. um, because we believe that, you know, it's, it's important for you to believe in God and, and be a, a wholesome person, a good person and, and to, um, you know, in your religion. Now, the same thing, I don't force myself to, you know, every scientist should do this or they're frauds. But, um, but I feel like too many of us shirk that responsibility. And yeah, I like to do my part to, to pay it you know, back and forward, by mm-hmm. the way, in Russian, speaking of Russian, so we've talked a lot about Einstein. Now we're going to, we're not <laughs> going to leave any room for aliens. We got to leave some room for aliens, but we in have Russian, to leave room for aliens. Yeah. In Russian language, the word scientist translates to someone who was taught, which is very powerful. Like it's not, that's not the word for like educator. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so it means someone who is taught. And, and I feel like that's very powerful because it implies an obligation, not only for me to be a student. Um, and I believe actively you have to work to be a student. Like it's, you're, nobody's a natural student. You have to work at it. Mm-hmm. And it's a fallacy to think that you can naturally absorb these material without uh, some programmatic way of doing it. I talk about some tools to do that in the book, but beyond that, you have to be a teacher because you mm-hmm. have to pay it forward. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that aspect of that little brief vignette from the Russian language. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's talk about aliens because that's yeah. Your- let's get into it. <laughs> so, are they real? All those videos that snuck out last year was that strategically placed to get our mind off of all of the wildness that was happening? Um, I need to know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I need to well, know. Well, I'm going to tell you what's going on with the. <laughs> <laughs> This is now, but NASA has been fully investigating this conversation. It never happened. Um, So again, the best answer for a scientist, not a cop-out, say we don't know. Mm -hmm. We can't rule out 
we can't prove it is. We can't rule out that it's not. Um, on the other hand, you can uh, speculate using methods of logical, rational inference. What are the probabilities that these spacecraft are here? And it's so fascinating to me because you can get people that are, you know, equally bright on both sides of the argument, mm -hmm. which tells me a couple of things. One is that it's something legitimate to investigate. It doesn't, you know, it's like the study, like if you're addicted to comic books, like that's nah, not great. But if you study the history of comic books in the paper and their social media, like that's scholarship, right? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like a comic books, like whatever, it's kind of cool. But but studying the so it's the scholarship of science as a sociological experiment. I find that fascinating. So you have people like my friend Eric Weinstein, and he will you know rhapsodize about how important this is the biggest thing, even if it's not true. It shows like governmental cover ups and Pentagon secrets, and and if it is true, you know so much the better because now they have to have mastered technology and and engineering and science beyond the 25th century, you know, kind of, um, so the stakes are very high. And then I'll talk to people in the government that are funded by the government that, you know, whose job is to research threats to potentially United States interest in the scientific and technical realm. Mm -hmm. We're not, we're not studying it. And I don't think they're lying. There's no benefit. In fact, some of it's public. So, um, they can't, you know, be expected to, to lie and get away with it. So I do feel like there are, um, you know, competing visions for what this is. What bothers me is the intensity, is the passion about it. Um, and in that, in other words, like it's it's like scientists are covering up. No, there's no there's no one, you know, Candace, who would be happier than, you know, my young colleague who's a she's starting off as a professor here, you know, for her to discover aliens, you know, and in unequivocal proof of it, like she get tenure, she'd probably win the Nobel Prize, she'd be no scientists have a huge vested interest in it, not just for like, oh, we're going to make movies and write a book, as mm -hmm. my friend and, you know, uh, Avi Loeb has has done very successfully. And he's at Harvard and he started a, a proper investigatory, you know, um, a group called Project Galileo. And I'm you know, fringe involvement with that, not fringe in the bad sense, but just uh, tangentially involved with it and external oversight. And this is using optical, like where else, duh, would you look for, you know, things flying around in space than a, a telescope? And who knows how to use a telescope better than astronomers? Like we've heard a lot from fighter pilots and things disappointed me, you know, when they showed on 60 Minutes, they just had like the fighter pilots and they didn't have any skeptics, they didn't have any astronomers, any any physicists talk about it. And it's not like I need more exposure or whatever. Mm -hmm. No, they should show both sides. Because I don't think I could convince someone who really believes in it. And I've had on, you know, Tom DeLong, who is, you know, Blink-182, but he mm -hmm. also brought a lot of this to, to, you know, the forefront in New York Times in 2017. And subsequently, he was on my show. And, you know, I, I can't say that it's 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 a slam dunk, you know, kind mm -hmm. of the cases that he's making. But on the other hand, I don't know if I could convince him. And in science, if I can't convince you that you could be wrong, if there's nothing I can say mm -hmm. that would falsify your preconceived notions, whether it's about me, about mm -hmm. some scientific theory, then it's just it's literally not worth my time. Mm -hmm. So part of the 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 conversations that I have in Think Like a Nobel Prize winner is about the importance of listening to your critics, but not too much. So mm -hmm. all these paradoxes, mm -hmm. you have to be confident and have swagger, but have humility and maybe a touch of the imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. You have to listen to your critics and love the fact that they criticize you because in so doing, they make your theory, your result stronger because mm -hmm. the more it, it survives attacks, like, 
you know, if you look at, you know, people complaining about Bitcoin or whatever, oh, it crashes, it goes up or down. You know, I've had Michael Saylor on my show. He's like, it's good when it crashes. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, oh, I guess you get a cheap. No, he's like, it shows that it's resilient, that it's what's called anti-fragile. The mm -hmm. same thing happens in ideas, in the space of logic and rational thinking mm -hmm. in science. It's good when you criticize, not personally ad hominem, but if you criticize my ideas with a form, I call it argue with love. Like mm -hmm. if you just do it to like shoot me down, build up your ego, and believe me, there's plenty of men and women like that in science. Mm -hmm. But if you do it out of genuine concern, and that can go towards spiritual things or whatever, if you do it, and I think that's the highest form of intellectual, rational discourse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. You can tell too when you're watching a debate and it's between two people that are friends, but maybe on different aisles of whatever the topic is. And you're, it's yeah. something that you can watch and you can learn. You're, you're learning from both people, right? Yeah. Um, and then you watch other ones where if maybe it's like one of those political shows where there's like five people and yeah. they're all yelling at each other like, well, this isn't going anywhere right. and I'm now stressed and I didn't learn anything. Right. Have you ever like watched a presidential debate, Candace? And, oh, yeah, I changed my mind. No, I'm gonna, now I'm going to vote for whoever. You know. no, no, it, it never, never works. So those are pointless. I feel like most debates are pointless except for mm -hmm. the ones whose stakes could not be higher. <laughs> and the key is to know which is which. Mm hmm. Yeah, exactly. We'll learn a lot more about extraterrestrials just to summarize. And I'd love to do a part two someday. But um, yeah. when we do discover aliens or not, but you know, the hard thing is to not fall in love with your own theories, with your own agenda in science. It's very tempting mm -hmm. um, to go out and seek that which and find that which you sought after. It's just a natural human tendency called confirmation bias. And the book was written as a kind of guide, not for scientists. I mean, Hopefully, a lot of scientists and they are, you know, responding very favorably to it uh, because, you know, there's an old joke. Uh, how do you know a scientist is outgoing uh, because he stares at your feet when he talks to you instead of your own, his own? Mm -hmm. um, and, that, and that's really true. And uh, I have a lot, you know, I'm always telling people, look, look here, not, not here. No, <laughs> just kidding. Um, you know, uh, but, but in the same token, if you think about um, what is useful to a person, you know, my avatar was some salesman car salesman in, in Tulsa, you know, Oklahoma or whatever, and, and saying like, what can, you know, that person use to level up their career? So we all have things with collaboration. We all have competition. Mm -hmm. We all have metrics. We have rubrics. We have, so translating those from the highest intellectual, you know, performers in, in history, as judged by most people, Nobel Prize winners, distilling that to language that ordinary people can use. I think mm -hmm. that was, you know, the, the main no, main goal in this book. And I'm already working on volume two with new Nobel Prize winners to come in the near future. But uh, but it was really, you know, it was surprising to me after writing a science book, the first book, losing the Nobel Prize, um, to write a self-help book, which briefly, you'll be interested to know, outranked uh, Brene Brown's book in self-help. So I was pretty proud of that. There you for, go. for a nerd to beat out Brene Brown. No, yeah, I think it's great. And I, I bought the Audible version, which oh, cool. is awesome because you can kind of like multitask and still listen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a very easily easy to digest, um, cool tools that you can apply right away and take little notes for yourself as to like important, I guess, mindset, right? It's a lot of yeah. its mindset is what mm -hmm. I'm finding. Um, Absolutely. So yeah. it's cool. But I definitely see, I can see that the audience is like probably a little bit nerdy, but I think that's cool. <laughs> right. Yeah. You want to unlock the, the inner nerd, but not yeah. too much. Not yeah. too much. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. I do want to say thank you so much. Um, I would definitely love to have you back on and dive deeper into some of these topics. Do you want to tell the listeners where they 
can follow you, how they can support you and where they can get your books. Yeah. The books are, you know, anywhere you get books. Um, and then, you know, I'm trying to, um, you know, maybe grow the YouTube audience on, uh, Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube. And then I have an audio podcast, you know, you can find, just search my name. I actually have two. One is basically the entire set of interviews with the Nobel prize winners. That's called think like a Nobel prize winner. And the other pot, my main podcast called into the impossible where I interview brainiacs, billionaires, uh, Bitcoin nerds and, and everyone in between. And, um, I always have like signature questions at the end. Cause I love to get into the existential, what is your legacy as a, as a scientist, as a billionaire, as a brainiac? What do you want to leave as your legacy for the immediate future, for the billion year future of, of all of humanity, maybe all of space and time? And then what advice would you give to your former self? And it's really reflecting on, you know, what means the most out of life is not what you do in the laboratory. I tell my students, I say it's, you know, it's the life that you earn outside of it. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to bring it to the people, as I say, thank you for paying your taxes. If you do uh, continue to do so, the sun's going to last for another 4 billion years. Uh, <laughs> go out there and get a telescope this holiday season. And then maybe Candace and I can partner on a, on a, on a brand deal. We can, we can co-package. I don't know. There we go. <laughs> thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yes. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Chatting with Candace. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a five-star review and share it with a couple of buddies. Um, those are the two quickest ways to help the podcast grow and get on the charts. So I would really appreciate that. And then if you want to continue your support, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash Candice, or you can go to chattingwithcandice.com. And from there, you can sign up for my Patreon and the last way you can support me is you can go to locals.com slash Candice. So all of those options are great ways to support this itty bitty podcast that could. I really appreciate all of you and I'll talk to you soon.